Unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard about Bitcoin at this point. And in the past 11 years since it was created, the price of Bitcoin has gone from pennies to a high of 64,000 US dollars per Bitcoin in early 2021. That's a staggering 72 million percent increase in that time. In dollar terms, $1,000 invested in 2010 into Bitcoin would now be worth $7.2 million. It's outperformed every asset since its inception. Investing $1,000 into Bitcoin in 2010 gives you a better return on investment than if you had bought $1,000 each of Apple, Google, Facebook, Netflix, or Amazon combined. So what's really going on here? How do you explain a 72 million percent increase in its price in just 11 years when Warren Buffett calls it a rat poison squared and the mainstream media is constantly calling it a scam? Could there be something deeper at play here? That's what we'll cover on this episode. What is the core human movement and principles that powered the belief and fanaticism in Bitcoin? And to talk about that, we have to dive into the early history of the internet and the cypherpunk movement. Part 1. The Cypherpunk Movement Our story starts in the early 1990s with the early internet. Tim Berners-Lee, considered the father of the World Wide Web, brought together different technologies to create it in the year 1990. And by 1993, we had about 130 websites on the internet. To give you a bit of context, as of June 2021, there are over 1.86 billion websites live. The websites on the internet in 1993 were very simple. They just displayed information or helped you find what you were looking for. So if you wanted to look up the name of an actor in a movie you just watched, you had the Internet Movie Database or imdb.com. And you also had things like the World Wide Web Worm, which was a way for you to search the internet. So Google before there was a Google. The people going online and creating these websites in the early 90s were the early adopters of the internet, mostly computer scientists. And a few of those computer scientists saw the future. They saw the internet for what it could be and the power it had to change everything about the way we lived. And they understood that they had a hand in steering that ship on the right path for the good of the internet and humanity. They called themselves the cypherpunks. The name itself is a combination of the word cypher, meaning secret messages, and punks, which describes a fringe subculture. The cypherpunks understood the internet at a deeply fundamental level, and they believed that once governments understood the power of the internet, like how they see it, the government would do what they always do, try to gain power over it, to surveil it, and ultimately control it. This would lead to privacy issues and ultimately impact human freedoms such as the freedom of what you can say and do on the internet. 
is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news this evening is the identity of the man who sent the Obama administration into defend and explain mode this week. His name is Edward Snowden. He's an American former CIA employee and computer technician. Today he came out as the leaker of classified NSA documents that spell out a secret surveillance program. Fast forward to 2013 and the cypherpunks were spot on. A former American CIA consultant, Edward Snowden, revealed to the world that the U.S. and other governments of the world had set up systems of mass surveillance to collect data on everyone, which was now possible thanks to the internet. Today, governments use the internet to routinely spy on everyone under the guise of protection against terrorism. This includes all texts, emails, social media posts, phone calls, and the photos on your iCloud or Google Drive. If it's on the internet, the NSA has access to it. And back in the early 90s, the cypherpunks saw this coming. The internet had to have privacy for it to be free and open. And they thought to use cryptography to achieve that. Cryptography is the practice of using code to protect and privatize communication, keeping it hidden from any unwanted listeners. One of the cypherpunks, named Eric Hughes, wrote what they call the Cypherpunk Manifesto. It said, Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. Privacy is not secrecy. A private matter is something one doesn't want the whole world to know. But a secret matter is something one doesn't want anybody to know. Privacy is the power to selectively reveal oneself to the world. This manifesto laid out the guiding principles for the group, arguing that privacy is fundamental for a free and open society. And that's both privacy in what you can say and what you choose to spend your money on. Privacy for communication, that was tackled first. Over the next decade and well into the 2000s, the movement wrote code that protected the privacy of internet users, from email to internet encryption to anonymous browsing. But remember, privacy for communication was just one part of their mission. The other was privacy in purchasing or transacting. For transacting with privacy, you needed a payment system online. And creating that on the internet with privacy would end up being a much bigger challenge. Part 2. Money for the internet by the internet. For most of civilization, when you've wanted to buy something without leaving a trace, you would use cash. It's a form of payment that was universal and has worked for centuries. But with the advent of computers, we started seeing credit cards and banking systems moving towards more digital rails, meaning everything we purchased was now logged in a database somewhere, which impacts the privacy we all have. And while credit card companies have said that they protect your privacy and will never sell transaction data, it has been shown that governments can get access to some of it. Back to the cypherpunks. For them, a future where companies or governments having that sort of data on everyone was alarming. An invasion of privacy that threatened freedom and democracy. For the digital world where we were heading, 
there needed to be a way to transact that was just as robust and private as cash had been for so long. Because when governments can track what you purchase, human behavior changes in a way that skews against a free and open democratic society. That may sound like a hyperbole, so let's get concrete. Let's say you're a journalist and a filmmaker, and you disagreed with how the government was handling an ongoing war. As a journalist and filmmaker, you want to tell the story to bring awareness to it. In a free and open society, the government is not able to impede you or create hurdles for you in an attempt to dissuade or discourage you from telling that story. That's free speech. But when you live under mass surveillance, or a surveillance state, a government is able to track you, know who you speak to and what you say, where you travel to, what you purchase, what websites you go on, and they'll use that information to have the upper hand over you. As we've seen with history, most governments or states use surveillance as a weapon to silence their critics. This is a real-life example of the filmmaker Laura Poitras. Her documentaries have been covering the U.S. post-9-11. After making a film about the Iraq War, she was placed on a secret watch list by the U.S. government in 2006, and her experience traveling started having significantly more hurdles. She was being detained and interrogated dozens of times every time she crossed the U.S. border. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit, and subject line you type is in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. In the end, if you publish the source... That's an email that Laura received from Edward Snowden, warning her about the enhanced surveillance by the US government. And under fear of the enhanced surveillance, or at the risk of having her film footage seized at the US border, Laura moved to Germany so that she could continue telling her story without the government impeding her. This is the reality we currently live in today and one that the cypherpunks saw decades before. Government surveillance leads to legitimate voices and criticisms being silenced. Which came back to their manifesto. Citizens must be able to communicate and transact privately for a free and democratic society. To me, it's obvious that the cypherpunks were ahead of their time. They saw the internet as a core part of society decades before all of that came true. And they had connected the dots about privacy concerns with the internet decades before Facebook or Google existed or the Snowden revelations in 2013. But while their thinking was ahead of the time, technology and innovation lagged behind. Multiple groups and companies tried to make digital currencies in the 90s and 2000s but they all failed because they kept relying on an old solution to a new problem. Part 3. The Double Spending Problem with Digital Currencies To explain double spending, let's start with an analogy. Let's say you find a funny meme on the internet, so you save it on your phone. Let's say it's a Spongebob meme. Hey Patrick, how the are you? Pretty good, Spongebob. Your friend Andy loves Spongebob, and so you share that photo with him over text. When you send that meme to Andy, you've actually turned one image into three images. The first image was the one you found on the website. The second was the one that you saved on your phone. 
and the third is now the copy on Andy's phone. This is possible with pictures and videos and other documents because it's just data. It's a bunch of ones and zeros on your phone. You can make as many copies of it as you want. No big deal, right? But imagine if you could do that with money. Like if you could copy paste more money. That would be disastrous. And in theory, you can do just that with digital currency. A digital currency is no different than a picture. They're both ones and zeros on a computer. Data sitting in a database. What would stop you from copy-pasting more money like you did with that meme? And if you did that, you'd be creating money out of thin air, with no way to tell which is the original and which is the copy. Computer scientists call this the double-spend problem. The only way to solve it for digital currencies was to do what governments do, use a central authority. For all fiat currencies, the dollars, pounds, euros of the world, central banks act as the central authority. They mint bills with specific codes on them, verifying the real and counterfeit ones. And if you have any doubt if you got a real or fake bill, you can take it to the bank and they can look that up for you. And the same is true for online payment systems like PayPal. The company acts as the central authority that stores all information about transactions coming in and out. If something doesn't add up, they can go back, check the tape, and reverse transactions. So naturally, all digital currencies started with the same foundation, a central authority, with the end goal being to enable people to transact on the internet privately. The most notable example of this was Digicash, launched in 1989 by David Chalm. It was a system that would be integrated with governments and banks and would allow people to buy online with complete privacy. But it ultimately never caught on. It was too early to the market, people weren't really buying things online, and frankly, the public didn't really care about privacy on the internet. They barely understood what the internet was. What well, Allison should know, what, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that Massive computer right. network. The one that's becoming really big now. How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? We had a few more attempts at digital currencies, but each iteration failed or never even launched. And the early to mid-2000s saw a slowdown in momentum for the cypherpunks. The group had solved privacy for communication for the most part, but privacy for transactions wasn't going anywhere. A decade and a half had passed since the original cypherpunk manifesto in 1993, and the world hummed along. That is, until 2008. The worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. The Dow traders are standing there watching in amazement. I don't blame them. We're now down 43%. Almost everything there completely wiped out. And the NASDAQ, everything and more has been completely wiped out. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. The Great Recession became the fuel that reignited the interest in digital currency. After seeing what had happened with Lehman Brothers, the largest bankruptcy in US history, it was clear that banks could not be trusted. A digital currency had to be created without having to rely on those banks. Lehman Brothers failing caused the world's largest economic downturn 
since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Stock markets plunged and major debt crises ensued across the world. We saw that irresponsible behavior by big firms on Wall Street could cause massive global impact that erased jobs, savings, and pensions for millions around the world. And the people responsible would get off scot-free, no jail time or fines for any of them. It became clear to a few people that the current financial system and its institutions were broken and corrupt, and the world needed a new one. And that's when Bitcoin came to the party and immediately put all bankers on notice. Actually, just kidding. Nobody really noticed or cared. We'll be right back on the Crypto Principles Podcast. To support the show, head over to cryptoprinciples.co slash resources to start purchasing crypto. Get up to $25 when you purchase $100 worth of crypto. The links can be found at cryptoprinciples.co slash resources. That's cryptoprinciples.co slash resources for up to $25 worth of credit when you buy $100 worth of cryptocurrencies. You might think that this was Bitcoin's coming out party, launching on the heels of the financial crisis, but that's not what happened at all. Only a few people really noticed and understood what it was and what it could be. Part 4. Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. 2008 was an interesting year. The world was still in the middle of the Great Recession, the iPhone had been on the market for a full year, and the Billboard top song of the year was... That's Low by Florida and T-Pain. At the same time, inconspicuously, Bitcoin's white paper was published online by Satoshi Nakamoto. Who was Satoshi? To this day, nobody knows. The name was a pseudonym, a fake name. Whether Satoshi was one person or a group, a guy or a girl, no one really knows. And that's part of the mystery of this whole thing. This mysterious unknown person or group published a groundbreaking white paper titled Bitcoin a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. At only seven pages long, it got right to the point. A purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. We proposed a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer -peer network. Now, if that didn't make any sense to you or sound all that groundbreaking, stay with me here. Making sure the same digital currency coin was not spent more than once, which, if allowed, would be creating money out of thin air, was called double spending. While everyone before thought that the only way to solve it was using a central authority, like a company or a bank, 
Satoshi thought different and did something that hadn't been thought of before. Solving double spending by getting people across the world to run the Bitcoin network. We'll get into the guts of what all that means and how Bitcoin works in a later episode. But the important thing to highlight is that, for the first time ever, there was a solution to the double spending problem with digital currencies that didn't rely on a central authority. Part 5. The Blockchain Let's do a quick recap of what led us here. We started with the cypherpunk movement in the 90s, where they advocated for privacy on the internet, recognizing how human freedoms and speech could be limited by the government. The group wrote code to add a layer of privacy for communication on the internet, but creating a digital currency was a bigger technical challenge. All previous attempts failed, the most notable being Digicash, where the company ended up going bankrupt. And it wasn't until 2008 with the Great Recession that the world finally got a viable digital currency that didn't need a central authority to function, Bitcoin. And that was possible thanks to blockchain technology. The blockchain protected against double spending by opening up Bitcoin transaction history for everybody. All the blocks on the blockchain contain transaction information that have happened on the Bitcoin network. How many Bitcoins does each wallet have? Which wallet sent Bitcoins to which wallet? Each block would be connected to each other with a chain. Blockchain. This transaction history would be kept on each computer running the Bitcoin network across the world, which also decentralized it, meaning it had no one single point of failure. If somebody attempted to create counterfeit Bitcoins and place them on the network, one of the computers running the network would be able to see that those Bitcoins have no history and they came from nowhere, and they would be flagged for removal. Now, with Bitcoin, you could send money to anyone, anywhere in the world, without ever having to contact a bank. And contrary to popular belief, Bitcoin wasn't totally private. It was private enough that it allowed you to transact freely without a bank or credit card company. And if that sounds like it could be used for some illegal activity, trust your gut. There's an interesting history with Silk Road, an online marketplace for illegal drugs and other services that only transacted in Bitcoin. We'll get into that in a later episode, but for now, the story continues with the new era that Bitcoin and blockchain ushered in, decentralization. Part 6. The Beginning of Decentralization When we look back on 2008 and the Great Recession, we'll remember it as the beginning of the era of decentralization. Decentralization simply means not having one single point of authority but being spread across many different locations. It started first by decentralizing currency with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not controlled by any single government, central bank, or country, nor can it ever be. If you're listening to this in a country with reasonable monetary policy like the US, Canada, or the UK, the benefits of having a currency outside the control of government may not be obvious. In fact, it might even be scary to you. Isn't it better to let them manage that stuff? But the sad reality is, most countries in the world and their governments are in it for themselves and don't prioritize the needs of their citizens.
They'll play fast and loose with their monetary policy to solve short-term problems, but the consequences for messing that up are dire. The country's currency can get devalued so much until it's effectively worth nothing. This means, as a citizen, your savings are losing value every day through no fault of your own. This is called inflation and can sometimes turn into hyperinflation. Every currency in the world experiences this, including the US dollar, but it's not as dramatic and it happens slowly over time. When a government decides to print excess money from their central bank, keyword being excess, when money printing goes awry, the consequences are inflation or hyperinflation. Listen to this story from the Bitcoin conference in Miami from 2021. This is from the talk with Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square. You know, I just was in a meeting yesterday with an amazing guy named Fode Diop from Senegal. He's telling me this story about how in the late 90s, you know, he lives in a country that still uses the CFA. It's a French colonial currency. So the French from Paris control these people and they make decisions on behalf of them. His father had saved up all this money for him to go to college. And the French just decided to devalue the currency overnight and he could no longer pursue his dreams. That's why when he saw Bitcoin later, he was like so open to it and excited. And he said, this is my ticket out of here, right? So this story isn't as rare as you'd think. Venezuela is currently in the middle of this exact crisis right now due to poor decisions from their government. By August 2018, it was cheaper for Venezuelans to use bills as toilet paper than to actually go out and buy toilet paper. The Boulevard bill has been undergoing inflation since 2013, when their president decided to print more money in response to the world buying less Venezuelan oil. Fast forward to March 2021, and the central bank in Venezuela has had to introduce a 1 million Boulevard bill, equivalent to 52 cents. The consequence for this irresponsible behavior is dire, so much so that 10% of Venezuela's population has moved out. 3 million people realize that there is no hope or future left in their home country. And the ones that stay are buying US dollars off the black market. Others have turned to digital currencies like Bitcoin. Both of these options represent a better way to maintain the wealth that you have. And this story isn't a one-off either. Other countries that have experienced inflation include Turkey and Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe is the one with their famous $100 trillion bill. For many millions of people in the world, Purchasing Bitcoin is not just an investment gamble with the hopes that the number goes up and they become rich. It represents an opportunity to opt out of the government's irresponsible behavior, to no longer be held back by their country's corrupt politicians, to take ownership of their lives. It enables people to save their wealth in something that is more robust, gives them the opportunity to live where they want to live and be able to afford their kids an education. It allows people to rest easy at night and not worry that one day they'll wake up to financial ruin at the hands of their government. For many millions of people in the world, Bitcoin is hope.
Part 7. Where we're headed. Bitcoin started off modest in 2009. Initially, only a few people used it, and you could buy one Bitcoin for pennies. And since its inception, it's been a volatile asset. It's had rapid price surges only for it to crash down and plateau for months or years, only for it to surge higher once again. The trend is clear. Bitcoin is consistently crashing upward. If that's even a saying. I'm not sure, but I'm coining it. Bitcoin. Consistently crashing up. Bitcoin reached an all-time high of $64,000 USD in early 2021. After rallying more than 500% from its previous year's low of $6,000. Despite harsh criticisms, Bitcoin has not just persisted, but grown and thrived. And with it, it's ushered in a new era of a decentralized economy, which is currently worth more than $1 trillion and growing in 2021. This new decentralized economy is rewriting the rules of our current system. It's changing how people send money abroad to their families, no longer using Western Union and getting slapped with fees, or having to wait business days to receive money. With crypto, you can send money abroad in minutes, for a fraction of the cost, 24 hours, 7 days of the week. It's also ushered in an era of decentralized financial institutions that offer borrowing, loans, and mortgages all using crypto. And that's not all. It's even changed how we value and trade art. In early 2021, a digital art piece was sold for $69 million, the third highest in history for a living artist of any kind. So that's the story of Bitcoin and how we really got started with it. In the 90s with the cypherpunks and the core principles that they laid out in their manifesto. And a lot of that has led to what we see today in this new decentralized economy. Which industries or problems will blockchain and crypto transform next? Nobody really knows, but here's what we do know. The Cypherpunk Manifesto got a lot of things right. The internet did become an integral part of society. Their early work in privacy for the internet is still used today. And the world did eventually get transacting online with some level of privacy with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin became more than that. It gave the world an alternative to the current financial system, born out of a need from the last financial crisis, and benefiting many citizens of the world who were unlucky to be born under irresponsible governments and regimes. So the next time someone says Bitcoin is a scam, or it has no utility, or is a rat poison squared, you now know that it's so much more than that. And if you're curious, I'm buying as much Bitcoin as I can, and I'll be continuing to do so for quite a while. Thank you for listening to the Crypto Principles Podcast. This show was written, edited, and produced by myself, Rahman Atta. You can find me on Twitter at Atare. That's A-T-A-R-E-H. And to support the show, head over to cryptoprinciples.co slash resources to start purchasing crypto. Get up to $25 when you purchase $100 worth of crypto. The links can be found at cryptoprinciples.co slash resources. That's cryptoprinciples.co slash resources for up to $25 worth of credit when you buy $100 worth of cryptocurrencies. Thank you.